It's 6.30, so let's get started. Um, I have to give my little disclaimer now. Um, be thankful that there's only one week left after this, because after tonight you may not ever want to come back. Um, I, I've been thinking about how... Yeah, so I had one last week. Now it's even worse. Um, allergies this year have been the worst ever in Phoenix because of all the rain, right? And I usually, even when there's no rain, I have horrible allergies, and I've escaped it so far this spring. I kept, everybody else is having allergies. I'm like, why haven't I had any allergies? Well, no more. So bad that I'm operating up here on Benadryl tonight. So th there's no telling what's going to happen tonight. I just let you know. I might fall asleep in the middle of this, actually, just like you will. Um, the other thing is, oh, um, let me ask, uh, Joe, would you mind closing those doors for me? Thanks. Um, the other one, too, the, uh, yeah. Um, also, I, I may have bit off more than I can chew. Um, we're going to read a lot of scripture tonight, but it's really pertinent, really important. And I know, I know one chapter of scripture that most of us don't, maybe, maybe some of you have never read it. <laughs> so that'll be really exciting. Uh, it is between the two covers of the Bible, but maybe, anyway, we'll see. So this is the third week of Zechariah. We're still in that section of Zechariah that he wrote between 520 and 518. We won't get to the uh, 490s until the last week next week. Um, there's eight visions. There's uh, uh, kind of a, a sermon on true religion. That's what I'm calling it. Uh, and, then, and then next week we have various sermons or oracles about leaders and shepherds, about the corruption of God's leaders and shepherds. So it speaks in many ways directly to pastors, which is good. You should be here to hear what God's Word might have to say to pastors. But it also speaks to the coming Messiah. We said that this book is very messianic. Uh, and the proclivity for humans to reject God and His wisdom. And yet in the midst of that, God's continued and persistent pursuit of his people and the remnant. We talked a little bit about that Sunday morning about how Jesus just pursues us. That's why he's called the hound of heaven. Um, so we've been through six of the visions. Tonight we have visions seven and eight, uh, the woman in the basket and the four chariots, and then we have this uh, verse, chapter seven and eight, uh, the sermon on true religion. So let's look at vision number seven first. That's Zechariah 5, 5 through 11. By the way, if you want to be ready for the other passages we're going to look at tonight, you can stick your finger or a piece of paper or a paper clip in Revelation 18. That's the one I'm guessing not a lot of you read a lot of. I, you know, why would you? Uh, and then Luke 16 will be in Luke 16 as well. Starting in verse 5, then an angel who talked with me, the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see uh, what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? And he said, it is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. So her name wasn't wickedness. <laughs> she represents all wickedness in uh, the world. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. And then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket that down there on its base. Uh, this might be the strangest of all the visions. Um, both the sixth vision, which we looked at last week, the flying scroll, and this vision, the seventh vision, uh, talk about God's judgment on all wickedness, all iniquity, all evil that it's going to happen, how he's going to deal with sin. And it's very common in both Old Testament and apocryphal writings, if you're familiar with 
um, the uh, uh, Catholic Bible. There's, there are other books in, the, in, the, in their Bible that we don't have that are apocryphal. Uh, and it's very common in those kinds of writings, including the Old Testament, to personify abstract concepts such as evil or wisdom or foolishness or redemption or even cleansing and purification. It's, it's a literary technique. Um, many poets use it as well, but it's especially prevalent in the Bible and especially in the Old Testament uh, poetry to personify abstract concepts. So here you have wickedness personified by this woman. You also have the cleansing and the purification personified by two women. So in the basket is all sin. The basket is actually a measuring basket for grain. So again, there's just a lot of times when you hear about how God is going to measure us. God is going to measure us. And, and he's always going to find us lacking when he measures us, whether it's with the plumb line, whether it's the, the vision in Daniel chapter 5 of the hand, uh, you've been measured and found lacking, whether it's this measuring basket here. That's one of the things that God does. He measures us, and, and we have to understand that nobody measures up except one person, and that's Jesus. And that's why we put our faith in Him. He's the one who actually is without sin, so He's the only one who measures up. We can never do enough to measure up. But that's a common theme, this whole idea of measuring. And so she, uh, the woman is representing all iniquity in the world. And then there are the two other women who represent the purification. They're not angels, but they're manifestations of the Spirit of God. And they're kind of cool. They have, I mean, read the description of their wings. It's, they're, they're like X-Men characters, if, if we ever could imagine something like that. But also, notice how, you know, people sometimes get upset about how the Bible speaks of women, uh, God is what I would call an equal opportunity metaphorist. Both of these are like metaphors, but you see the metaphor, the woman is evil, but also there's two women who are, represent the purity and the cleansing. So he's an equal opportunity metaphorist. So this is a picture of God purifying his creation for the establishment of the new Jerusalem, which is going to come and we read about in Revelation. And then verse 11, what is the land of Shinar? Anybody know what the land of Shiner is? Anybody? Yes. It's Babylon. It's, it's another way of referencing Babylon. Okay? So Babylon uh, is, is this interesting city that in the Bible is used real as like realistic. Babylon, the real city, but it's also used metaphorically. Babylon refers to any wicked or evil place, any place that's wicked or evil. So Babylon proper has always been considered evil by God, even though he used Babylon proper as part of his judgment uh, during 605, 597, 586. Um, but it's also symbolic of any and all evil power centers. In Revelation, most of the um, references to Babylon actually mean what city? Anybody know? Rome, exactly, yes, Rome. So when you see Babylon in Revelation, very often it's referring actually to Rome. So today, I thought it would be fun if we made a list of cities that Babylon might refer to. And since I'm the only one with courage enough to say it out loud, Las Vegas, San Francisco, thank you, you... my brother, have you been looking at my notes? It's third on my list, Yuma is third on my list. See, this is a wonderful congregation. You guys are all starting to think like me, which should scare the snot out of you, I'm telling you. So, turn to Revelation 18. Okay, here you go. This is going to be a little bit of a chore, but I would argue that reading Revelation more often and pursuing an understanding of it, rather than ignoring it or staying away from it because it's too hard to understand... Um, what happens when you don't read it and study it for yourself is you open yourself up to all the Revelation crackpots. Do we have any Revelation crackpots here tonight? Any of you? Any Revelation crackpots? Have you ever run into a Revelation crackpot? Yeah, okay. I did an 11-week study at Paradise Valley Community Church on Revelation, 
And I knew the very first night, right out of the gate, I said, if you're here to explain to me all the different things that Revelation crackpots do, um, you're welcome to be here, but I'm not having any conversations with you because you're not going to change my mind. And one of the big ones is they all know exactly the day and the hour when Jesus is coming. They all know that. Even though they've been wrong several times before, they know now for sure when he's coming. And I'll tell you that I taught that first class, and I had three different people. I could tell they were Revelation crackpots. I had never seen them before. It just gets it. If we announce just in our church we're having a study on Revelation, people from all over Maricopa County would show up. It gets in the water somehow. I don't know what it is. They sniff it out. They just, they just show up. And I could tell they were Revelation crackpots. I'd never seen them before, and they weren't coming right up to me to talk to me. They were all hanging around waiting to be the last one to talk to me because they didn't want anybody else around while they talked to me, and they also wanted to be able to not feel like they had to get done with me so that somebody else could talk to me because they wanted to keep me there all night. So then it was this competition of all three of them kind of dancing around each other, and finally I said, would, would, please, okay, and every one of them said, I know you said... I know you said that no one knows the day or the hour, Matthew 24, 36. I know you, I know you said that, but okay, just hear me. I do know. Okay. Revelation crackpot. You are free to go. There's a Methodist church right down the street, and you're just free to go and talk to them. Okay. Anyway, that wasn't in my, my notes, but that, that was the antihistamine speaking right there. See how good this could be if the antihistamine takes over. All right. So if we would just read Revelation and spend some time in it, and work at it a little bit, it might be interesting. So, after this, this is John describing everything. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out in a mighty voice, here you go, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons. So Babylon meaning Rome, or Babylon just anywhere that there's evil? And the answer is yes. In the context that this is written, it would have been Rome, but it also could be any future evil city or any future place where evil resides, okay? She's become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. This is a poetic way of saying everything that's corrupt in creation because of sin haunts there, hangs out there. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Why is the church so obsessed with sex? Because people are obsessed with sex. That's why. And the Bible speaks to sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Wonderful economies with no consequences. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As, for, as she glorified herself and lived in luxury... So give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Now, this is all metaphorically speaking, but it's God letting people know his judgment is real and his judgment is coming. That You need to take this seriously, okay? Um, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. We could... Here you go. I'm sorry. If this bothers you, you can email me and Roz will take care of it, right, Roz? So anyway, um, uh, it, how much longer do you think that we can just inflating, inflate the debt and print money in order to keep our economy good? How much longer do you think that can happen before we have to pay some consequence for it? Well, we can do it forever. That's what I hear in the marketplace. It doesn't matter. It's going to keep going. It's going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. You know, keep buying real estate because they're not making more of that. Real estate's just going to keep going up. I've heard that now four or five times in my lifetime, okay? What's the other saying, by the way? <laughs> when there's blood in the streets, buy real estate. <laughs> so just wait for the blood, and then everything will be fine, all right? But I digress. And mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. 
For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear and torment and say, and say, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. In other words, this happens really fast. When it happens, there's no warning. Okay? And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, uh, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. By the way, we could make a different list with all the stuff that we value today and put it in there. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of the wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. They're not going to help the great city. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea, stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads, that's a sign of mourning. And they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city, where, where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she, had been laid, she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty, mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of the harp, harpists and musicians of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of the lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and all who have been slain on earth. In other words, not only did they do all this wickedness and, and think that they weren't going to be judged for it, anybody who spoke a word of, uh, of the Lord to them, who spoke biblical truth to them, who spoke a prophecy to them of warning, a prophecy of warning, they killed them. We do the same thing today. We do the same thing today. And then 20, verses 11 through 15. Chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, that is, the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So we are judged according to what we have done. What have we done? We have sinned. How do we do enough to get out of what we have done so that we're not judged, so that our name is written in the book of life? We have to be in Christ because he's the only one who can withstand this judgment of what you have done. He's the only one. And so if we're in Christ, we're judged based on what Christ has done. He's in the book of life. That puts us in the book of life. That's why this stuff is really important. Um, anyway, all of that is a picture of the future final victory of God over sin and evil, over Satan and his demons. And, and we can also take from this vision 
It's not just that individual people have sin. There is also collective sin that we will suffer the consequences of. There's collective sin of, of people groups. We have to understand that. It's not just our sin. It's, it's the collective sin. And, and, and I want you to think right now, I think this is timely, of everything that's going on with abortion. Okay? I honestly never thought it would get to the... I thought we would... St- I thought reason would eventually prevail. But now we are willing to execute full-term babies that they're trying to abort full-term, and if they happen to come out alive, we're going to kill them. And it's legal to do that in some states now. This is... This, here you go. We, we, we want to think of everywhere else being Babylon. We are Babylon, y'all. I, you're a revelation crackpot, Frank. No, I'm just saying we're Babylon. We got issues. We're allowing this stuff to happen. It's just fascinating to me. That's a pro- oh, but no, they just want to expire the mass of tissues. I'm sorry, I misspoke. That's the way they speak of it. Okay. Now the final vision: the four chariots. This is uh, six one through eight. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth uh, chariot dappled horses or mottled horses, kind of spotted horses. All of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country. The white one goes... After them, the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. They were ready to go. And he said, go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth and they cried to me. Then they cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. So, if you remember, we started with the vision of the four horsemen. Now we have four chariots. So you can see why some people want to arrange these visions chiastically. So let's do one and eight together, two and seven, three and six, four and five. Um, so what's the deal with the two bronze mountains? Um, it's possible that the two bronze mountains uh, represent both the righteous judgment of God and the entrance into uh, his kingdom, okay? Uh, kind, of the, kind of the highway into heaven. Uh, bronze is always a symbol of strength, almost always a symbol of strength. And the horses are vessels of judgment. And here, um, the commentators say it is possible that the, ho- that the colors mean something. We said they don't, they don't mean anything in the first vision, but in this vision, it's possible that it means something. Uh, so the speculation is that red is holy war, black is death, white is triumph of God, and the dappled or the mottled uh, horse is pestilence. But again, we are also told by the commentators uh, that we're pretty sure that even though we may know what the colors mean, they aren't the key issue, but rather the conclusion of the vision is the key issue. The chariots go through the whole earth, and they are, read it, they're on a mission from God. They're like a 6th century B.C. blues brothers, okay? That we're, we're on a mission from God, and we're anxious to get going with it. They were impatient to get going, Okay? And they come before God, they're sent out by God, essentially they are heaven's army. Chariots are the ancient version of tanks. Have you ever, you ever gotten that feeling where you see a bunch of tanks lined up, it's kind of scary? Well, same thing, if you saw a bunch of chariots lined up, that would be really scary. It's very intimidating. They're like the ancient version of a tank. And, and they symbolize military power. And the angel says that there are four, they are the four winds of heaven. And the reason they're described as the four winds of heaven, that's the word ruach, which uh, means both heaven and spirit, depending on the context. Uh, and, and the reason they're described that way is because it's like wind has this ability and the spirit also has the ability to pretty much go wherever it wants. It can, it can go anywhere. It can go in, in other words, there's no place outside of God's reach, no place outside of his vision. He's going to be able to see it all. No escape from his sovereignty and his presence. But notice the conclusion. The north is the focus. Two of the chariots go north, one goes south, and we're not sure where the other one, uh, the fourth one goes. 
We talked about this last week. Israel's enemies rarely attacked from the east or the west. Mostly they attacked from the north, especially when it came to Assyria and Babylon, which is really mostly the focus of uh, this book. And we're told that the foes of the last times will also attack uh, from the north. And, and at the end of the vision, it says that God's uh, spirit is going to reside in the north too. And so I, I, this, is, I, this is weird. It's probably just me, but I can't help but read all of that and think about the Wizard of Oz, that it was the good witch of the north. I don't know if there's any sort of correlation there or not, but anyway, the wicked witch did not come from the north. So, so God's spirit will rest in the north as a way of saying, quite simply, God will have victory over all his people's enemies. God will win. And it's also good to remember at this time, again, Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 and 3, when God first comes to Abram and he says, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So then Zechariah seems to wrap up these visions with a little bit of a summary, uh, the last half of chapter 6. So let's read that, 9 through 15. And the word of the Lord came to me, take from the exiles Hedai, Tabaja, and uh, uh, Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day uh, to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch For he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne. And and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the the Lord as a reminder to to Helam, to Baj, all those guys, including Hen, which I can pronounce. And those who are far off shall come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. So, verse 10 reminds us that some exiles are still returning from Babylon, which is interesting. So, the year now is 518, 519, 518. There are still exiles returning. There's some that are returning now from Egypt. There's some that are returning from Persia. There's some that are returning from Babylon. And they are told to go to Joshua the high priest and make him a crown. This is a sign that the Messiah is going to come. And remember, Jesus is from Joshua's line. And these exiles take part in a narrative that wraps the eight vision by, visions by looking forward to three important things. Number one, verse 12, you look forward to the Messiah. That's Jesus. Number two, you look forward to the temple. I believe here this is primarily a reference to the future temple of the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem is going to be the temple of God. There isn't going to be a... Be a Uh, Revelation tells us there won't be a need for a temple in the New Jerusalem because New Jerusalem is the temple. But I also think this is a reference to the fact that they are going to finally finish rebuilding the temporal temple. Okay, And then the third thing it looks forward to is this fact. Salvation is the Lord's. That the Lord uh, sends or appoints all times, places, and people. Another way of saying it, Rennie, you've heard this before, either causes or allows all things to happen. That, that when things happen to you, remember, this is some sort of an appointment maybe. Okay? So, now we get to wrap up with chapter 7 and 8. Sounds an awful lot like James talking about true religion. Let me read you James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, and you'll see that verses, chapter 7 and 8 in Zechariah sound a little bit like this. James writes, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and defiled, or true religion, before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, those are just, that's not a comprehensive 
uh, uh, way of practicing, uh, here you go, the way Paul says it, of being worthy of the gospel. They're just representations of what it means, that we need to serve others and we need to be careful of sin, okay? So look at chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent uh, Sherezer and Regem Melech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month if I, as I have done for so many years? So they're going and asking God. Should I keep fasting? Should I keep doing that? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? Can you feel the tension here? You should feel tension here. Okay? Zechariah is really confronting these, these guys that came. Okay? We, we don't know who these guys are. They're, they're merely representing the people in, in their self-centeredness. That's what they're representing. We don't know specifically who they are, but they're representing the people of God in their self-centeredness. Uh, one author calls this paragraph here reality or ritual? The question is, is this reality or is this just ritual? Do you really have a relationship with God or are you just going through the, the rites? Okay? And it's interesting this should help us answer it. They're coming from Bethel. What is Bethel known for in the Old Testament? It's, it's, a, it's a city in the northern kingdom, Israel, that completely abandoned Yahweh and built temples to all of the false gods. So Bethel was the center of idol worship. It was the one place that the prophets used to speak against all the time. And these men are coming from Bethel. So that's an, important, that's an important detail. And so what they're doing is they're coming and they're saying, okay, God, do we really have to fast and pray? <laughs> do we have to? Do we have to fast and pray? And here's the interpretation. All these acts of devotion to God were really not devoted to God, but were instead were to make us look good and manipulate the spirit world, and now we want to know if we can stop doing this stuff. Is it okay if we stop now that we've been restored? Okay. I, I can't help but think, um, in Plato, in Republic, um, he writes about his brother Glaucon. Any, has anybody read this? Anybody heard of Glaucon and the ring of Gyges? So the king, Gyges, has this ring, this special ring. This is going to sound a lot like um, Lord of the Rings, okay? So he's got this special ring that Glaucon wants because if you put this ring on, this special ring, it makes you invisible and you can go do whatever you want. And the question that Plato is asking is, if you had the ability, if you had the power to be able to go and do whatever you want without your reputation ever suffering for it, you are never found out in your sin, would you do it? If you could sin with impunity, without anybody ever knowing, without any consequences ever coming down on you, would you do it? That's the moral question that Plato's asking with this allegory, okay? These guys are essentially saying, look, we don't want to have to do this. We don't, want to, we don't want to put on this facade anymore. Okay? So the word that God gave to Zechariah is simple and state and, and uh, simple and straightforward. The ritual is not what's important. Appearance is not what's important. Reputation is not what's important. The question is, who are you and what is your motivation? And oh, by the way, your motivation sucks. It's right there in the ancient Hebrew. Suck off, okay? All right? See, many people behave religiously as a form of self-service, not worship. 
They do it as a form of, of, of um, papering over the fact that they really don't want to serve. They really don't seek to be close to God. When we play at religion, it's kind of a ring of gaijis. See, God values relationship over mindless behavior. Okay? I don't know why that isn't obvious to us. I love it when people ask questions about why we do things at church because it means that they're thinking about it and not just doing it mindlessly. Okay? So God really indicts these guys. He says, first of all, I'm calling you to the spiritual disciplines more than you ever did in the first place, and I'm calling you to do them for for our relationship and not your narcissistic self-centeredness. You're not going to do this anymore so that you can virtue signal. You're going to do it because you're in a relationship with me. And if not, you're on your own. Here you go. God has a funny way of saying, don't expect the benefits of being in relationship with me if you refuse to be in relationship with me. How many people want the benefits of being in relationship with God without being in relationship with God? It happens all the time. He's saying it's time for true religion now. True religion. And true religion comes from what's in our heart, not what we're trying to paper over. And I hear the questions. I get them. I've gotten them before. Well, if God is so loving and wonderful, why do we have to do so much? Well, here you go. Take that attitude into your marriage with your spouse and see how that goes. How many of you are married and you do things because you love your spouse and you're called to do it? It's part... Bad word, it's part of your duty, but you do it anyway because you know that's the right thing to do. And, and, and some of us even do it with joy. Same thing with work, okay? Just take that attitude and why, I don't understand, I go to work, I mean I show, why don't they just give me my paycheck and not, I don't have to do anything? Why don't they do that? Why, well, I don't get it. See, we get, it. We, can't, we get it. We can't take that attitude into marriage. We get it. We can't take that attitude into work. We get it. But then we come to God and we say, we want that attitude to work with God. That's what we do. And this is the attitude that all the Old Testament prophets speak against. Is it really that big of a problem, Frank? Yes. A third of the Bible, or a third of the Old Testament is devoted to this one problem. Okay? Yes, it's a problem. Okay. Our, our propensity to accept things willingly and joyfully in context other than our relationship with God and then believe God is an ogre for wanting the same thing from us is fascinating to me. And I'm so glad I've never done that in my walk. I'm kidding, those of you that, like, what is wrong with him? Okay, then the second part of uh, chapter 7, 8 through 14 And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Doesn't that sound like James? Doesn't that sound like maybe James is summing this up when he writes 126 and 27? But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. Here, here you go. The, the picture is literally this. La, 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 la. I can't hear God speaking to me. I don't want to hear it. Okay? They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. So verses 9 and 10, it's true religion again. It's that passage in James. Uh, Paul and Peter also have passages like this that talk about what it really means to um, live in a manner worthy of the calling of the gospel in our lives. What does it mean? What does it look like? Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32, uh, for instance. Uh, Peter, uh, just read read 1 Peter and you'll be all set, okay? And then verses 11 and the first part of 12, uh, this is not new. God had the same message for his people uh, well before the Assyrian and Babylonian conquests. They didn't listen then. 
Through his prophets, he warned people for centuries, but they didn't listen. They were stubborn. The, um, uh, the term in the Old Testament that is often used is stiff-necked. Yeah, stiff-necked. They, they refused to turn and look at any other possibility. Uh, the, way, the way we might describe it today is they had on spiritual Teflon. Okay, God's word would come at them, but they'd have the bing, bing. Oh, that's, for, that's for that person. That's for that person. It's never for them. Spiritual Teflon, like a spiritual force field. That's the diamond hard heart that Zechariah describes. Okay, so um, I can't believe it. It's like within two weeks I have two Godfather references. I have another Godfather reference tonight, okay? So those of you who haven't seen The Godfather and you don't like my references, just watch The Godfather movies and then you'll be all set, okay? So anyway, this is from Godfather 2. Uh, there's this scene. I, just, I would just be curious if anybody remembers this scene. Um, during Godfather 2, uh, Michael is called before uh, Congress, uh, a special committee of Congress that's investigating his criminal activity, and he's... Um, asked a lot of questions from these senators and everything. And, and, and he gets off. He finally figures out a way. He brings in um, uh, Pantangeli's brother from Italy. And all he had to do was show up, and Pantangeli, who was going to be the witness against Michael, recanted everything because he knew they were going to kill his brother just by having him show up. So he recants. Michael's off the hook. No more congressional inquiry of Michael Corleone. So now Michael's in his hotel room in Washington, D.C., and he's signing some papers, and Kay, his wife, walks in, and she says, uh, Michael, I just came to tell you that um, uh, I'm leaving, and I'm taking the children with me. And he says, what are you talking about? We're leaving tomorrow. We're all going together. Just wait till tomorrow. And she said, no, you're not hearing me. I'm taking the children, and I'm leaving you. I'm done with you. And I will tell you, of all the Godfather scenes, including the horse head, okay? This is the most difficult scene for me to watch because of the verbal violence that Al Pacino, his character, Michael Corleone, visits on Kay, his wife. Does anybody remember the scene? Any? Oh, my gosh. I, I wouldn't want to show this clip. It's awful. The way, the, the verbal violence that he uses against Kay is very disturbing. And, and I'm quoting him here, but he's yelling and screaming, I don't want to hear about it, I don't want to hear about it, enough, over. Okay, that is the perfect picture of God's people listening to him, coming in love, saying, you need to change. And it's God's people saying, I don't want to hear about it, I don't want to hear about it, enough, over. And I think that might be the last Godfather illustration I ever use. Enough over. Because <laughs> nobody's seen the movie. This is terrible. Okay. Anyway, God's anger results in, in, in the divine judgment acts of 722 and 605. That's what happens. Okay. Michael loses his family. That's his divine judgment. In verse 13, finally, the complete eradication of the northern and southern kingdoms finally causes the people to say, oh, okay, now, okay, 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 we're sorry. Now we're ready for a relationship, and God says it's too late. There will be a remnant, but you had centuries to turn this around. I had to move on this. We, we need to remember, God is very patient. He's way more patient than we are, but he's not infinitely patient. If you're counting on God's infinite patience, you're going you're gonna to have a problem. And verse 14 is the sad result of the con conquest that the people are now charged with rebuilding, which then leads to what happens in chapter 8, which we're going to get to in a minute. But I want to go back to verse 12. The message of the former prophets. He, he keeps saying this. You didn't listen to the message of the former prophets. God is very serious about this. And by the way, so is Jesus. So go to Luke. the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, and there's one specific line in there that we need to hear, okay? There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. In other words, 
he had to have somebody carry him there and lay him, lay him there, and he was just hoping that maybe some food would drop from, Laz- from that rich man's table. He was covered with sores, and he desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, heaven. The rich man also died and was buried, buried. And in Hades, he's separated from God now in hell, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And the rich man called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm. A great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And the rich man said, Then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. We have Jesus in the word of God. Are we hearing it? Are we hearing it? He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So if you're not going to listen to Moses and the prophets, you're not going to believe in, in, a, in a miracle. So there you go again. I say this all the time. If God would just do a miracle for me, then I'd believe. No, you would not. No, you would not. I'm always interested in the people who... By the way, we'll get into this when we get into Jonah. We're doing Jonah for five weeks after Easter, okay? And I know everybody's very anxious about the big fish. How are you going to explain the big fish, okay? I'm not saying that... I'm not going to explain it here now because I don't really... I still don't even really know. Was it a real fish? Is it a metaphor? I don't think it's that important. But I will say this. The, people, the number of people who believe in the resurrection, but they have trouble with the fish? Okay, you believe in a resurrection, but you're really struggling with a big fish. Okay? I've read marine biologists who have written that we still only have 5% of the ocean floor mapped. We don't even know what's going on down there. That doesn't mean that there's a big fish somewhere, but, you know, Okay? They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to him, to them. So the people of God are a picture of indolence and insolence. Indolence and insolence. You can't say those words together fast. Indolence and insolence. And we can be too. Indolence is just laziness. We're just not going to do anything. We're going to, we're, here you go. I love doing what I do at Paradise Valley Community College, teaching, you know, the communication. But again, it's, it's, every semester I'm, I'm just fascinated by the number of people who work way harder at not doing anything than if they would just do the work. They're so determined to not do the work that they, they put in more energy and effort and time and money in not doing the work. I don't understand that at all. That's somebody who is indolent. Insolence is showing a rude and arrogant lack of respect. So God's people are both. They don't want to do anything, and they're going to flip God off as they're doing it. Pardon the... But that's what they're going to do. Then, beginning of chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion... With great jealousy, and I'm jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age, and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. I want you to think about God's picture for the community of faith there. Okay. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it, um, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of the people in those days, 
Should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. So this is a picture, these eight verses is a picture of the coming kingdom of God. And it should be a picture of the church today, but sadly it, it isn't often. It often is not. Okay? So a couple things. First of all, God is jealous for us. Well, how can a good God be jealous? Isn't jealousy a bad emotion, a bad characteristic? Well, our notion of jealousy is completely lacking. Okay? Our jealousy is self-centered. His jealousy is other-centered and all about what is genuinely good for the other person. The literal definition of this Hebrew word that is translated jealous here is a type of anger generated when someone you love is hurt either by others or their own actions. You are angry because somebody you love has been hurt and it, and it doesn't matter how, whether somebody else or their own actions. And that jealousy motivates you in love to do something about it. That's genuine love. We're told today that's not genuine love. When we confront somebody who's about to hurt themselves because their heart's leading them astray, we're told that's not genuine love. Genuine love is to let them go ahead and do it. That's a problem. God's jealousy is the sadness and anger he feels when, when we are foolish or when others hurt us. But... And he's going to judge that, but we need to remember that his judgment's going to come on his timing and not ours, which is a problem for us as well. You know, we see his, his delayed judgment, God's delayed, delayed judgment, we see that in two, through two different windows. Um, when his delayed judgment on us is on us, we see that as a really good thing. But when his delayed judgment on others uh, happens, we see that as a bad thing. It's, the, it's, it's, it's another way of saying... We really love grace for ourselves, but judgment for other people. That's called the self-serving bias. Okay? Second of all, look at the multi-generational aspect of the kingdom of God. Here you go. You ready? You ready? Listen now. I'm, I'm saying this with all the love I can muster. And frankly, I'm probably saying it to a room full of people who don't need to hear it. But I feel like I have to say it because I see it in so many other churches. Okay? Old people, never, old people need to get over their preferences and quit taking churches to the grave because of their preferences, comfort, and stubbornness. They are, how many churches are dying because... The old, the old people just won't let go of their preferences. But there's another side to that coin, and I see this all the time too. Young people need to get over their arrogance that creates an us-versus-them church ethos that is never, ever honoring to God. I, I, was at a, I was at a church conference once, and a young pastor was speaking. I had to get up and leave. The arrogance was just, it was, I don't even know how he got the gig. It was just filled with arrogance and all about, we got to just push these people out, push these people out, push these people out, you know. We know how to do church. Okay, go do it then and leave us alone. <laughs> all right? See, God's kingdom is multi-generational. By the way, this is one of the reasons why I really like Redemption Church a lot. Okay? This multi-generational thing is across all congregations. If you visit all of our congregations, you'll see that. Every single one of our congregations somehow is multi-generational. Okay? Church is not a place where we spiritually dress up our preferences with doctrinal-sounding language. Um, Jim Moreland tells a story uh, a lot of the, of the um, uh, person who stopped me in church one day. This was at another church. Stopped me in church one day and said, Frank, I just want you to know that the only instrument that God hears in heaven is the organ. You can play all those other instruments, but the only one he hears is the organ. Where's the verse? Okay. 
I seem to recall Psalm 150 saying something about loud, resounding cymbals and the zither. I love the zither. Do you all know what a zither is? It's kind of an ancient guitar. Okay? Anyway. And you can see in verses 7 and 8 that God's kingdom will come from all over the world. All over the world. If any one of us thinks for one second that somebody's going to be excluded because of their geography or their ethnicity, we're going to be, we're, we're going to be sorely mistaken. Okay? And then verses 9 through 13. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong, you who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present in the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast, neither was there safety from the foe for him who went out and came in. For I set every man against his neighbor, but now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all things. And as you have been a byword of, of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. So God is referring back now to the year 538 when they all first came back. This is about 20 years earlier. And they began to rebuild. And remember, we went through this uh, late last fall in Haggai about how hard it was. And there were many challenges and there was a bad economy and they abandoned building the temple to protect their own houses. And in the midst of all of that, neighboring nations were nasty to them. God restores them back into their land, but it, it's not like it went easy and it went well. The, the, the neighboring nations were angry about this, and they gave them a hard time. I, I'm reading a book right now on um, James Garfield. Um, he's not the cat. He's, he was president of the United States in like 1880, I think, or 1884. Um, and... One of the parallel stories is about Alexander Graham Bell. So you all know who, what did, what did Bell invent? Telephone, okay. So I'm fascinated by this because as a kid, you know, you learn that Alexander Graham Bell invented the phone. Yay! I want to be like Alexander Graham Bell. Yay! Cool. You just invent something cool and everybody loves it and all that. Okay. Did you know that Bell was sued more than 600 times? over his um, patents and copyright infringements. Just, Bell had a miserable life. You don't get that in grade school when you're told, well, Bell invented the phone. I don't, by the way, I don't know if they talk about that anymore in grade school because nobody has an old-fashioned old phone anymore. But, but at any rate, you see the point I'm making, though. They never told us about how hard Bell's life was. Okay? It's the same thing with this rebuilding thing here. Oh, they came back, and they got their land back, and they started to rebuild. Oh, it was terrible. It was way harder when they first came back than living in exile. Remember almost 100 years later when Nehemiah came to build the wall? How much trouble he had? He had to take up arms at one point? We forget how hard this stuff is. We just sort of gloss over it. Life is hard. So... The temple work stopped in 536, so God is saying, now get back to work. You're going to finish the temple, he's saying, which they did in 515, and he says you're going to prosper. The crops are going to come back, the Dow's going to go up 200%, my people will be strong. But they're going to be strong by God's power and presence, verses 14 through 17. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purpose to bring disaster on you when your fathers provoke me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts. So again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Do not, uh, and love no false oath. For all these things I hate, declares the Lord. So again, more true religion, more James, okay? So God said 
I'm going to judge you in 722 and 605, and he followed through. And because he followed through on that judgment, we can also trust him that he's going to follow through on the restoration. You see that? So he's talking about the restoration here. You can count on him to restore things. But here's the problem, and this is why he gives this counsel in verses 16 and 17. He starts to say, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. With prosperity, I know this will shock some of you in this room, with prosperity comes a desire to get even richer and to start defrauding others. I know that's a foreign idea to many of us in our culture today. So he has to tell him, look, the better you do, you're going to have to really pay attention on how to live in a just manner. Okay? And he says, the reason you need to do this is because I'm just, and you're my people, so live in a way that I call you to live. 18 and 19. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth month, and the fast of the seventh month, and the fast of the tenth month shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Remember the guys came and said, Do we still have to fast two months? <laughs> so what's God saying now? You're going to fast four months. Okay? But why? Why? Because the fasting is going to turn into feasts. That's what he promises us. Do you think there's going to be any fasting in the New Jerusalem? No. It's just going to be feasting. It's going to be absolutely beautiful. And, and here's the thing about feast. Let's just admit, we love a good feast, do we not? Okay, I just heard today, I got good news, I got really good news. Um, Easter is at my sister-in-law's house, Renee. She is an incredible cook, so that's really good news. It's going to be a feast. I don't know how good I'm going to be at the 5 o'clock on Easter because it'll be between services, okay? But what's even more important than the eating of the food, the feasting? What does a feast imply? Huh? Celebration, community, relationship. See, that's what's even better, okay? I'm sorry, Renny, but even better than your food is the fact that Shelby's going to be home for Easter. Yeah, she'll be here for two days. So you see that? It's, it's the community. It's the relationship. The idea of a feast is that we won't go without, but also the idea of a feast is that we're going to be with God's people, and there's going to be a celebration. And then 20 through 23. Thus says the Lord of hosts, People shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples, um, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, and uh, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So this is a clear reiteration of the call on Israel to be the light of God to the entire world, to all the nations. Unfortunately, God's people failed miserably at this. And so judgment came. Uh, we get on Jonah. One of the things we'll talk about in Jonah, we get on him for disobeying God, right? Okay? He's supposed to be a light to the nations. Okay. Jonah's problem was is that he didn't want to be a light to people who didn't deserve it. And you can kind of, can't you kind of understand, and don't we kind of feel like that sometimes? Really, God's going to save that person? Trust me, I went to some high school, uh, I went to high school with some people who are quite curious about the fact that I'm a pastor now. They're pretty sure it's a ruse of some sort. You know? Seriously. It's, it's hard. So God is saying, I haven't changed my mind. You're my people Quit hoarding the blessing of me and start passing out the blessing. Go and tell. Shout it from the mountaintops. And remember that my grace is open to everybody, including the Ninevites that Jonah didn't want to go and preach to. Um, I've said this before. I think we're going to be surprised at who's in heaven. And the people we'll see, we see will be surprised also. This is true religion. This is grace. So next week... 
Um, we're going to go through 9 through 14. That's six chapters. I'm not going to read all of it, okay? Um, but I will tell you, it's, it's interesting stuff because it's about leaders and shepherds, mostly about leaders and shepherds and their corruption and how God despises that. But he also talks an awful lot about the Messiah, the remnant, and the kingdom of God as well. And it's also in this passage that we get that picture of Jesus coming into um, uh, Jerusalem on the colt or the donkey. Okay. Um, Jim and Ann and I were down at, um, in, yeah, I can tell you this story. Jim and Ann and I were in Florence Friday night for a wedding at the Windmill Winery. Has anybody ever been down to the Windmill Winery? Okay. So I've done a few weddings down there. It's been a while since I've been done one down there, but um, uh, one of the things they have at this wedding venue is um, they have this uh, little guy, old guy, and he's got this pretty good-sized donkey. I've seen donkey. This was a pretty good-sized donkey, and the donkey on either side has um, these uh, buckets just dangling off the donkey, buckets, buckets of ice-cold beer. Okay, so it's kind of a thing, and he walks around with a donkey, and you can grab a beer out of it. So he had that at the reception, okay? They kept the donkey outside, don't worry. So anyway, um, so I, Steve said, I got to get a picture of you with the donkey, so he took a picture of me with the donkey. And, and I started talking to the guy, and I said, uh, I said, you know, Palm Sunday's coming up. And he goes, you know, you wouldn't believe it, but I am in really high demand on Palm Sunday. And I said, so in other words, there's buckets of beer riding into Jerusalem? And he goes, yeah, I know it's really weird, but, but yeah, I'm in really high demand on Palm Sunday. <laughs> so anyway, see, that was worth another 90 seconds. Let me pray. Uh, Lord God, thanks for your love and your grace and for your truth and for willing to tell us like it is uh, as you do in Zechariah. So let us just be reminded that everywhere we turn, we find your sovereignty, your righteousness, your ultimate judgment, and your grace in how much you love us. Uh, just remind us of that every day. Let us preach the gospel to ourselves every day. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. See you Sunday.